Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Tobolowski Files, Episode 7, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by legendary character actor Stephen Tobolowski. Uh, my name is David Chen. I'm the host of the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. And joining me as always, he is an actor who has portrayed the character of Sal in Beethoven's Big Break, <laughs> Stephen Tobolowski. <laughs> How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great today. Oh, what a great mention of Sal. And, and you know, uh, you know, in Beethoven's Big Break, I know a lot of you people have seen it, seen it probably several times. I certainly of, have. It's definitely part of my regular rotation. So Yes, <laughs> it's part of the heavy rotation. Um, I do get a lot of parents with little kids who've seen Beethoven's Big Break a lot. Now, I have to say... That for all you young actors in there, don't look at my performance in the role of Sal as like a template on how you should act in movies. It just, there was something about doing a Beethoven movie that made me want to be bigger than life. And also Sal is a character who has his own kind of animal TV show, kind of like Marlon Perkins in Wild Kingdom. And so, and he's also a showboat. Uh, he, he fancies himself a great, huge television star so i played him as this huge egomaniac but david i want you to know that after i finished shooting this movie and was living somewhere in the regret adjacent of of uh, <laughs> maybe having portrayed this part too broadly it did amuse me enormously i look back at some of the other beethoven movies because i think this was like the fifth or sixth beethoven movie uh-huh I don't. You're the expert on that. You've seen all the Beethoven I'm definitely movies. Definitely the and, Beethoven expert. Yes. <laughs> and every one of the Beethoven movies has affected the actors the same way. They all overact. From Charles Grodin to the people in the last one, they're all bigger than life. And uh, I think it's something about the dog themselves. You know, it's three dogs that play Beethoven. Right. You can't you can't do a movie like Beethoven with one dog. You have one dog who's good at sitting and barking. You have one dog that's good at running and jumping. That's the female. She's a little smaller. And then you have another dog that's good at standing up on your shoulders and knocking you to the ground. Um you know, that could be a subject for a good story. I think I think yeah, once did. again David Chen has inspired me <laughs> to do a story on Beethoven's Big Break. I, I have a couple of reactions. First of all, shocking to me that uh, Beethoven, the, as a film series, would not inspire the most subtle performances out of actors. So that's I'm gonna put that out there. Uh, and second of all, uh, so you know, I'm, I'm just my mind reels at the logistical. Uh, necessities for three dogs playing one role. Do they paint the dogs all the same way? You know what I mean? No, no, absolutely not. You know, the the dogs, they, they don't even care. They they assume that the dogs all will, the human brain will make all the dogs look the same. In fact, if you take a look at another animal movie I did, which was Homeward Bound Part 2, I played the voice of Bando, the country dog. And I know, David, this is another one you probably watched a lot. Yep, yeah, yep. But if you watch... Seminal, the, seminal. <laughs> the middle dog, the bull terrier dog, uh, occasionally that dog has a huge spot on its back, and then occasionally it's solid white. And, and they didn't even bother 
they didn't even bother like, oh, what difference does it make? You know, put in the spotted dog, put in the white dog. It really doesn't matter. And and nobody what what I was unprepared for was I sat in the audience watching Beethoven, was the audience response not only to Beethoven, but to the puppies. If you wanted to talk about star power, you could say Beethoven is like Eddie Murphy or something like that. You know, we all know it's star power. It really works. But Beethoven's puppies, when Beethoven's puppies came on the screen, the oohs and ahs from the audience were very humbling. And I knew that in my portrayal of Sal, I would be lucky to hang on to the edge of the frame with my fingernails and those puppies. They wiped me off the screen. Well, you know, Stephen, uh, during this time we've had the podcast, which has been uh, a little, little over six weeks at this point. You know, you've, you've told a lot of stories about your past work on movies and uh, about just life in L.A. And something that has come to my mind, I, this thought has crossed my mind, and I'm sure it's crossed many of our listeners' mind, is, uh, you know, are your stories completely 100% true? All the you time. Know, uh, whoa, 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 whoa. That's, that's a great question because I have gotten a lot of emails from people criticizing the factuality of my stories from scientific points of view and wondering if certain ex- extreme elements of my story could be true. Uh, the short answer is yes and no. Uh, because I've always kept notes on my life. I've always written down at the time things occurred, what happened, so I would remember the details. But a lot of times the human mind cannot grasp onto what is true. I'll give you an example. Um, you may have heard of this. This was actually a real scientific experiment. I think they did it at Columbia University. See the I think? They did a Columbia. That could be an area where it's not true. I do believe it was Columbia University. When the uh, Challenger, the first Challenger exploded and killed all those astronauts and Christy McCullough, the teacher, I mean, we were all devastated. In a journalism class there, they gave um, all the journalism students to write an essay of what you were doing when the Challenger exploded. Have you heard of this experiment? No, I haven't heard of it. You haven't. So then they found these same people like 20 years later. And they asked them all, the ones who were still living, they asked them all to write an essay as to what they were doing when the Challenger exploded. And almost 100% of the essays, the second time, were different from the first. The first time, people who said that they were washing clothes alone when the Challenger exploded, the second time they were writing, they were in a bar with a group of friends, and everyone burst out crying. I mean, there was no comparison between the two. So with that in mind, the fact that the human brain is a collection of chemicals that sometimes puts you know, uh, a monkey wrench together with a monkey, uh, it, it gave me the idea to tell the story of the podcast. Now, as far as I know, everything I tell in these stories is true because they have the ring of truth. And, and that is more potent than somebody trying to be clever. I've learned that over, and all you actors out there, uh, an audition tip, all laughter is laughter of recognition. When people recognize something is true, they go like, 
oh, that's true, and they laugh. You don't have to be cute. Uh, but at the risk of uh, stepping on the line of credulity, I, I remember there was a story my brother told me when he was at Massachusetts General Hospital. He was, I believe, an intern there. And it was a story about a woman who came into the emergency room laughing, saying, this is my lucky day. See, she had been in a car accident, but the car accident was right in front of the hospital. So she just got out of her car and walked right in. How lucky can you get? She was put in a bed in the emergency room, and she was laughing and joking with the interns and residents. She had a vivacious personality. She was telling all the doctors and nurses, do whatever you had to do so she could get the hell out of there. One of the interns left her room and went to see the doctor in charge. The intern was shaken, and he asked his superior what to do. He had just checked the vitals of the woman who was in the car accident. This is the same woman who was carrying on down the hall, and she was actually dead. The doctor in charge grabbed the clipboard and looked at all the numbers, and he mumbled that there had to be a mistake, and he went back to see the woman himself, himself, and she was still there laughing, talking about her fortunate misfortune, wondering how soon it was she was going to be getting back home. The doctor said soon. He just had to double-check some things. He ran another series of tests and came back to the intern. Apparently, the impact of the accident had destroyed every organ in her body. She was, for all practical purposes, dead, but her body didn't know it yet. Her vivaciousness was a product of shock, not joy. And the best they could do was keep her quiet, ask her to call her husband, tell him where she was without getting her too upset. They gave her a sedative, they sat with her, they talked to her, she fell asleep, and she was dead in two hours. I asked my brother recently for more details on this story, and he told me he had never heard of it before, and it certainly didn't happen to him, and I was mistaken. Now, this is the story that had haunted me for years with a sort of a primal power, and now the prospect had arisen that the whole thing was just not true, that it was made up. And truthfully, I have no comfort from the inconclusive origin of the woman who was dead but didn't know it. It just moved in my brain from the medical oddity category to the urban legend category, which is kind of in the same neighborhood, kind of crazy adjacent. I was wondering if my lack of relief came from the fact that deep inside my heart, I know the story is true. Not that a woman walked into a hospital laughing and saying it was a lucky day, but I know it is possible you can be dead and not know it. I'll go further. I know it happens all the time. And not just in obvious cases, like, like my friend and actress and marathoner Kitty Swink, who felt sick one morning before a run. She dropped in to see her doctor and found out she had late-stage pancreatic cancer. She went to the emergency room for surgery, and she happened to be one of the few who survived. It happens in less dramatic ways every day with relationships. My first girlfriend and I had been together for 17 years, but something had not been right for the last 16 years and six months. A lot of times we have trouble recognizing the fatal or near-fatal collisions in our lives because they often come in disguise. 
And one of my collisions came in the guise of a party my girlfriend and I threw at our home in the Hollywood Hills one New Year's Eve. I remember the invitation on the party said that it went from 9 p.m. until question mark. As I look back on one of the things that I have the most trouble believing about this party was that it started at 9 p.m. 9 p.m. is bedtime. Ever since I have kids, if I am not in bed at 9 p.m. watching reruns of Law & Order, it means I'm in a hospital somewhere or doing a night shoot. But this was back in the 80s. Yep, the 1980s, the decade that made self-destruction a popular form of recreation. I had had a fight with my girlfriend right before the party started, so I made a martini, kind of calm myself down. It worked so well, I made another one and chased it with a reefer. One of my first guests was a rock and roll friend of mine who came dressed as a surgeon with a plate of cocaine. So I did a line of cocaine, which had about the same effect as falling backwards 30 feet into a vat of coffee. Then another rock and roll friend of mine came in with tabs of acid. Ooh, I put one of them on my tongue. The elapsed time from the first martini to the last tab of acid was about 20 minutes, and I had my first misgivings that maybe I had over-medicated. Two hours later, I was naked wearing a red derby. The place was overflowing with other over-medicated people. Outside, the hot tub was cranking up to about 105 degrees. The girls were taking off their clothes and jumping in. As a rule of thumb in life, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, once girls start to take off their clothes, events will change. You could count on this like you count on gravity. This party was no different. The men in the party started moving their beer-drinking en masse toward the hot tub area like they were iron filings being pulled by a magnet making the beard for Willy Willy. My friend Budge got an idea, and that was never a good thing. Budge was an actor, but he also made money as a writer in porn. And not just any porn, but he wrote movies for none other than Marilyn Chambers. He wrote under the pseudonym Manny Hatton. I actually looked him up on IMDb, and he's there. One of his many works was Insatiable 2. Check it out. Well, he made some phone calls to about a half dozen of his porno friends who were shooting wet and wild nurses in the vicinity. He told them, hey, drop on by the party, and that did it. Just like taking too many carbon rods out of a nuclear reactor, there will be a tipping point where you're going to get some kind of critical mass. And the porno people were it. And I have to take my hat off to them. They were highly sociable people. It took them almost no time in making themselves right at home. They came in, they grabbed a couple light beers, grabbed some chips and salsa, and then started having sex with everyone. Men and women who had previously been snacking and drinking Bloody Marys and talking about how tough it was to get an audition in this town suddenly dropped their paper plates, stripped, and started having sex in the backyard or on the sofas or in the back bedrooms or in the jacuzzi. I figured the fumes from this party could make women pregnant downwind. It was like something you would imagine in the last days of the Roman Empire. Any second you expected Caligula to walk through the front door. But instead, it was Sir Ian McKellen. Yes, Sir Ian heard there was a party going on. I have no idea how. 
I do have kind of a psychic theory mixed with Star Wars, that when there is kind of a rift in the moral universe, like this party was, it sends out a sort of bat signal for the curious. It says, come check this out. Something like this may not happen again before you die. Ricky Lee Jones came over, and just before shedding her garments and jumping in the hot tub, she sang a song a cappella in the living room that remains to this day as one of the most beautiful things I have ever heard. Carla Bonoff came over, Bonnie Oda Holmesy, who was one of the lead dancers in the Martha Graham Dance Company, uh, blues singer Bonnie Bramlett. They all dropped in to see what the commotion was all about. This was it. This was the Hollywood party I had always heard about my whole life, and it was at my house. I was the host. The odd thing was that in spite of my being naked and wearing a red derby, despite standing at ground zero of a hands-on display of the seven deadly sins, despite being high on acid and cocaine, I never did anything. I was too busy loading the dishwasher, putting chips on plates, refilling dip, getting desserts on the table, cleaning vomit off of the wall, sweeping up broken glass, opening up beers for people. Hey, debauchery requires a lot of maintenance. At one point, a friend of mine, Mary, said she would help me put out some more food. She mistakenly filled some of the bowls on the table with my dog's gourmet liver treats. By the time I discovered this error, half of them were gone. No one complained. I remember Ricky Lee asking me at one point in the evening if I would make a toast. And I had no idea what to say. I, I raised my glass and yelled out, here's to dumb luck. Apparently, it was the right thing to say. The crowd cheered. They raised their glasses. And it worked. I don't think anyone died that night. The party lasted for 33 hours. At the end of it, there were a dozen naked bodies on my living room floor. It was dawn of another day. I was cooking eggs and salmon. There were open bottles of champagne everywhere. And I went outside alone. I slipped into the pool. It was cold. It was absolutely quiet. I ducked down into the water so just my eyes were above the surface I held my breath and I stayed silent for as long as I could. And then flapping down onto the roof of the house, about 30 feet away, came a great horned owl with a wingspan of about six feet. It was amazing. He must have heard about the party too. Figured it would draw a lot of rats. I felt invigorated by the water and the owl. I finished cooking breakfast for the remaining revelers put back on my red derby and saw a cluster of shiny metallic mylar covered helium balloons and I thought, hey, it would be great to greet the new day with a private moment. I opened my front door. I saw the rising sun. I said a little prayer. I think I prayed for peace of mind. I may have prayed to get my life back, prayed to find love again. I released the balloons. They drifted up up into the sky, and then they veered to the right and hit a transformer on the telephone pole, and there was this enormous electrical explosion knocking out all the power to the area. I closed the door quickly, hoping the neighbors didn't see the naked guy with the red derby and the shiny balloons. I made my way down the hallway to my bedroom, and I lay down and finally closed my eyes. 
my mind was spinning endlessly from the combination of drugs and being awake for so long. And as my breathing slowed, and as I felt myself starting to drift away, the last image I remembered was what I whispered to myself a few moments ago to the rising sun, and I was afraid. I was afraid that not all prayers are answered, or maybe they are, but not in the ways we expect or in a language we understand. Stretch of headlights have been into I nine. Tiptoe in a truck stops. Sleepy so light. Volcanoes rumble in the taxi and glow in the dark. Camels in the driver. At a certain point, my girlfriend Beth and I had inflicted enough misery on one another that if a meteor fell from outer space and took us both out, the average happiness of the planet Earth would have probably gone up about two percentage points. I moved out of our home to another place about a mile away, and Beth went back to visit her family in Jackson, Mississippi. Curiously, at the same time that my personal life was hitting at one of its all-time historic lows, I got a gigantic break in my career. My agent set up a meeting with Alan Parker for the film Mississippi Burning. I was being considered for the part of Clayton Townley, the head of the Ku Klux Klan. I went in and met with casting great Howard Fuhrer and Alan Parker in Century City, and I was not nervous at all for some reason. I think because I had an idea. A lot of people think that acting is about emotions. Can you cry? Can you laugh? Can you scream? Well, guess what? You can. We're all human beings. We're all emotional creatures 24-7. But how do you know what we're doing? That requires an idea. And a lot of times, actors just throw themselves at a part of what I call the linguini method. They cook it up, throw it against a wall, and see what sticks. I thought about Clayton Townley. And one notion came back to me over and over again. He certainly didn't think he was a villain. He thought he was a hero for the white race, an advocate. And I was determined not to play the man as if he was one chromosome short of being human, like the way lots of bad guys in action films are played. Or the way I played Sal in Beethoven. But uh, anyway, I walked in and met Alan. His work preceded him. Never have truer words been spoken. He's always been visually arresting, like Pink Floyd's The Wall. He's crafted emotional sledgehammers, like Shoot the Moon and Midnight Express. And he's been completely unpredictable, like with Bugsy Malone and Fame. And, and I do have to throw in the commitments, because even though it was after Mississippi Burning, it is classic Alan Parker. On the first audition, he simply asked me how I saw the man. I said... Abraham Lincoln. He said, I beg your pardon. I said, he sees himself as Abraham Lincoln, saving a nation. I intend to play Kate Clayton Townley as a hero. Alan lifted up his eyebrows and nodded and said, well, let's read some. I read a couple of scenes looking out at a golf course across the street. I never looked at Howard or Alan. My agent called up afterwards and said that I did well. I was going to get a call back. 
That was great news. I went back in a week and did the same thing again. Alan called me back again a third time. Now I was getting a little nervous. I was sitting in the waiting room before the audition, and the secretary smiled at me. And she said in a kind of secretive way that they liked me a lot. She said a lot of the other actors reading for the part were trying to be scary, but I seemed to be scary naturally. I thanked her. I read for a third time, still felt good. I heard nothing. After a couple of weeks, I got a call that really got me nervous. Alan wanted me to read for a fourth time in Mississippi, in Jackson, Mississippi. They would fly me out for the day, put me up at the lovely Holiday Inn, and I would go in and read for Alan again, and then fly back to Los Angeles. And as much as I was thinking about the movie, I started wondering if Beth was still going to be there visiting her family. Would I call her? Would I not? Would it be just my luck she would be hanging out at the bar at the Holiday Inn that evening? The suspense was making me crazy. I flew out to Jackson. My audition was about at 1 p.m. so they could get me back on the 4.30 flight to L.A. I walked down to an office on the first floor. Almost all of the lights were turned off. There was just a desk lamp directed toward the chair where Alan asked me to sit. He had his video camera on, and he pointed it at me. He was sitting back in the dark. I just heard his voice about eight feet away from me. The meeting started like this. Alan said, So, I had dinner with your ex last night, Beth. I was so unprepared for this. I just smiled and said, Oh, that's nice. He said, She's really something. I said, oh, yes, yes, she can be very amusing. Alan continued, why did you two break up? I answered flatly, we had a very severe disagreement as to what constituted a joke. Pause. Alan laughed out loud, very warmly. He said, very good, very good indeed. Then I read through the scenes once more, went back to my room. And I heard later that day, I got the part. I'm not sure, but I think my reply about dinner with Beth sealed the deal as much as my four readings, which practically never varied. I was hired for two weeks at $3,000 a week. This was enormous. It meant in one week, I could pay two months of my house payments and have money for a movie and a giant tub of popcorn and a large drink afterwards. One of the scenes I was to do was a huge outdoor torchlit rally. They were actually bringing in 2,500 extras to be in the audience. It was rumored that one-third of these extras actually were using their Ku Klux Klan cards as ID to work on the scene. When a scene takes place at night, you could be sure it means that the actors are shooting all night and you are going to finish it around dawn. And because there were so many people involved, and because the weather in Mississippi was so uncertain, I was asked if I could just hang out in Mississippi until they had to go ahead from the weatherman. My two weeks of employment was now stretched into 10, and I was getting paid for each week just to hang in Mississippi waiting for the green light. Even though I wasn't working, I was asked if I wanted to come to the set. Ah. 
in that movie, the set could have been a two-hour drive to a remote town in Mississippi, Georgia, or Alabama. But I said, yes. It's always good to say yes. Well, usually. I was in my trailer waiting to watch them shoot a scene with Gene Hackman, and I had a knock on my door. Opened it up. It was Alan Parker. He said he heard that I was interested in directing, and he wanted to know if I wanted to follow him around and watch him do what he does. I said, sure, great. Since this was near the beginning of my career, I thought people did this all the time, especially one of the all-time greats. Alan first took me over to the film editing room where we watched his editor, Jerry, piece together some of yesterday's work. I asked Alan why he wasn't supervising the edit of the film. Alan says, because it's Jerry. He's the best there is. He knows what I want. That's why I use Jerry. We went to see John Willett over in set design. I worked with John again later on Mr. Magoo. And he taught me some incredible things. Uh, But that's for another day. Today, John was telling me about making up a batch of OMD for Alan. And I said, what is OMD? Alan smiled and said, it stands for old man's dick. It was a mixture of purple, yellow, and brown. And we make a wash of it, and we paint it on every prop, every surface of the set. Every chair, every tabletop, every door is all painted in a wash of OMD. We make a dye out of OMD and dip every piece of clothing in it. It's everywhere. I go, why? Alan smiled and said, you'll see tonight. Come to the dailies. I went with Alan that night to the screening of the work from the previous day, and I couldn't wait to see what OMD was doing to our movie. I watched the dailies, and I couldn't see anything. There was no sign of the dye or the color at all. One of the black men came marching onto the screen, and he was being taunted by some white men, and I noticed something, but I wasn't really sure. Afterwards, Alan asked me what I saw. I said, well, I didn't see OMD. Alan said, I didn't ask you what you didn't see. I asked you what you saw. I said, the skin. I saw the black man's skin. Alan's face turned a lovely red, and he said, right. The OMD is on everything except human skin. The eye senses a sameness, and it tends to discount it. It makes what is different jump out. Since this movie is about the color of man's skin, we use OMD to fool the brain into focusing on skin tone. Wait till you see it on the big screen. And boy, Alan was right. On the big screen, at the premiere, it was visually stunning. Not flashy, just remarkable. I continued over the next week to follow Alan around into sound editing, into camera rehearsals, discussions over lenses. About two weeks into the routine, things changed. I would be in a meeting about tomorrow's work, and Alan would suddenly stop almost mid-sentence and say, Stephen, how would you shoot this scene? I was shocked. Uh, This meeting had cameramen, the DP, the head gaffer. He's the guy who does the lighting. And they were all looking at me with a certain amount of confusion. Like, who is this guy? I stammered and offered a shooting plan. Alan would say, that would work, but it's not very good. This is what we're doing. 
And then he would lay out a series of shots I would never dream up in a million years. For the next month, Alan would teach me new things and throw pop quizzes at me, quizzes that I never passed but always learned from. Finally, we got the go-ahead to shoot the big torchlight scene. Alan was having a drink in the bar with all of us, and he looked over at me and says, All right, now it's your turn. Don't fuck it up. Alan was looking at me seriously, but I couldn't help smiling. We shot all night long the next night, and that's the subject of another story, and I recorded that on Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party. I won't go into it here. But I just wanted to make the point at this moment in time, I still had no idea the great gift Alan Parker gave me. I thought he was just being a good guy or an idiosyncratic guy or a teaching guy. I didn't know what. But here was a man who was not my friend, not my family, not someone who owed me money. And he was giving me the benefit of his entire life. It was a great man giving a gift to somebody who was at the start of his journey. When I was doing Groundhog's Day, Harold Ramis told me that making it in show business was impossible. Everyone who makes it has to have at least four heroes. For me, Alan Parker is one of my heroes. I tried to thank him once a few years ago. I ran into him at a movie and movie theater over in Westwood, and he looked va- vaguely irritated at me. He says, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Stop it. It was nothing. It was nothing. To quote William Shakespeare from A Winter's Tale, if this is nothing, why then the world and all that's in it is nothing. The covering sky is nothing. Bohemia is nothing. My wife is nothing, nor nothing have these nothings. If this be nothing, to Sir Alan, I thank you. I love Mississippi. They, they hate Mississippi. They hate us because we present a shining example of successful segregation. These northern students with their atheist communist bosses that have come into our community this summer with the wish to destroy it, this week have taken a terrible blow. This week their cause has been crippled. This week, all of these federal policemen you see out here prying into our lives, violating our civil liberties, have learned that they are powerless against us if every single Anglo-Saxon Christian one of us stands together. That was Once in a Lifetime, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky. And, you know, Stephen, it's fascinating to hear about director Alan Parker, who uh, more recently has directed films like uh, The Road to Wellville, Evita, and uh, Angela's Ashes. Uh, you said you saw him a few years ago at, at Westwood. I'm wondering, was that the last time you, in fact, saw him? Well, yes and no. Uh, this is this is interesting. This is kind of freaky. Is that uh, my son, my eldest son, took a very misguided high school course in Paris, France, and so my wife and I went over to Paris to make sure he was okay. 
to be there for his birthday. And I asked Robert if he wanted me to do anything for his birthday. And he says, yeah, dad, could you do my laundry? So (laughs) if you've ever tried (laughs) to find a laundromat in Paris, France, let me tell you it is difficult. So it's very day class A. So I got a basket of all of Robert's dirty clothes and I headed out on the subway to find where I believed, according to a map, was uh, a laundromat. And I'm walking down the sidewalks of Paris, and a man came up to me and said, oh, excuse me, you're Stephen Tobolowsky. And I go, yes, sir. He says, you are in Mississippi burning. And I, I go, yes, sir. And he goes, I'm a friend of Alan Parker. And I go, oh, my gosh. And here I am holding all of this laundry in Paris. I'm a friend of Alan Parker. Uh, you know, he always speaks highly of you. And, and I said, well, thank you. Thank you very much. If you could please convey uh, my best wishes to Alan, too. Uh, he's certainly one of the guiding lights of my life. And that was the last time I ever had mentioned with Alan Parker tangentially through somebody else. Got it. Well, hopefully you'll have the opportunity to work together again at some point. Maybe. Oh, right? I would love to. Yeah. I would love to. Well, I think that's going to take us towards the end of this episode of uh, the Tobolowski Files. But before we do that, uh, Stephen, why don't you tell people how they can reach you via email this week? I think the best way they could get me at email is at stephentobolowski at gmail.com. And I would love to hear your your feedback, uh, ideas for new podcasts, things. It's amazing how I've been inspired by the emails. It's just great. And tell me what you liked and didn't like. That's all great. Um, that would be stephentobolowski at gmail.com. And I know it's compulsive of me, but I will spell it because it's unusual. S-T-E-P-H-E-N. T O B as in boy O L O W S K Y. Not I, because a lot of people make that mistake. Yeah, a lot of people make put in the I. For some reason, they feel compelled to put an I at the end of my name. <laughs> well, people can also find you on Twitter at uh, twitter.com slash Tobolowski, right? That is correct. And uh, I just want to say where people can find me. You can find me hosting the Slash Filmcast at SlashFilmcast.com and at SlashFilm.com. You can also email me at SlashFilmcast at gmail.com and follow me on Twitter at Twitter.com slash Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen, S-K-Y. Uh, and one last shout out I want to give is to Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party at stbpmovie.com. Uh, this is a storytelling movie that Stephen did that inspired the podcast. And uh, if you are interested in hearing part two of that Mississippi burning story, <laughs> then uh, pick up that DVD at Amazon, iTunes, uh, or not on iTunes, but Amazon, Netflix, and uh, anywhere uh, movies are sold. You can also get it to at, at stbpmovie.com. So that brings us to the end of this episode of the Tobolowski Files, guys. Thanks for tuning in, and have a good week. Bye-bye.